0: back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's Emergency Medicine Practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta, and we'll be taking you through the July 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Emergency Department Management of Dysmia in the Dying Patient.
1: This month's issue was authored by two of our former attendings, Dr. Ashley Shreves, who's an emergency and palliative care physician at Ochsner Medical Center in New Orleans, and Dr. Trevor Poor, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine in New York City. This article was also edited by Dr. Ethan Cohen of Mount Sinai Beth Israel and Dr. Michael Turchiano of Maimonides Medical Center. Because ED-related palliative
0: care literature is somewhat sparse, much of the data and recommendations presented in this month's issue come from
1: studies conducted outside of the emergency setting. And that doesn't make the recommendations any worse. I think it actually makes them better and more robust since much of the literature they reviewed comes from the expert inpatient palliative and hospice units. I couldn't agree more. So let's start with the basics. What is dyspnea? Well, the American Thoracic Society defines dyspnea as a subjective experience of breathing discomfort that consists of qualitatively distinct sensations that vary in intensity. While patients with dyspnea
0: from a litany of causes may present to the ED, we're going to focus specifically today on those with dyspnea related to terminal illness. And although just a subset of a specific population, we aren't
1: talking about a small number of patients. This is actually quite common. Just to give you a sense of the magnitude here, one study found that up to one-third of cancer patients presented to the ED in the last two weeks of their life. That's a lot of patients. Similarly, in a study of all Medicare recipients, half had an ED visit in the last month of their lives. That's half of all patients on Medicare. Also, just a ton of patients when you think about it. And as if that wasn't enough, with geriatric ED visits on the rise, predictive studies indicate that emergency physicians will face end-of-life situations in increasing frequency. And while all of these patients don't necessarily present with dyspnea, a large number do.
0: In one study, 70-80% to of patients with terminal cancer experience dyspnea at
1: some point during the last 6 weeks of their life, with an increase in the last 2 weeks of life. In addition, dyspnea doesn't simply affect a patient, causing fear, anxiety, and restrictions in the quality of their life. It also ranks as one of the most distressing symptoms to the patient's family. I think that adequately outlines
0: the obvious need for emergency physicians to manage dyspnea compassionately and skillfully. Unfortunately, several studies indicate that despite this obvious need, the ED experience of the dying patient is often poor. And while this is likely a systems problem, with the help of today's recommendations, we hope
1: to empower you all to raise the bar at your respective shops. All right, so let's dive into the pathophysiology. Although not completely understood, dyspnea is caused by disruption of the homeostasis of the direct action on medullary chemoreceptors at PaCO2, PaO2, and pH, coupled with the psychogenic component of fear and anxiety. More simply put, dyspnea is a failure to
0: match ventilation with the brainstem mediated respiratory drive, which is then further exacerbated by
1: panic and subsequent increased metabolic demand. It's an unfortunate and vicious cycle. And dyspnea in the dying patient may be caused by a huge number of etiologies. Table 1 on page 3 goes through these in detail, but I'm confident that our loyal listeners probably already know most of them, so let's jump right into pre-hospital care.
0: Perhaps the most important component of pre-hospital care of the dying dyspneic patient should be a rapid assessment of the patient's goals of care. Unfortunately, often information is limited or lacking, and decisions must be made quickly. Legal fears, the culture of EMS, and the ambiguity of advanced directives are also substantial barriers to this process.
1: In one study, 70% of terminally ill patients were found to lack decision-making capacity at the end of life. Therefore, EMS crews and ED physicians, for that matter, must rely on either the written documentation of prior wishes, if those exist, or on the word of the healthcare proxy or healthcare power of attorney. And even
0: if such documents are available, two studies found that EMS providers feel inadequately trained to interpret them. To help combat this problem, some states have adopted MOLST and PULSE, or medical orders for life-sustaining treatment and physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. This form is bright pink to help EMS crews rapidly identify it. What is smart design? Unfortunately, despite reported theoretical use, other studies have found that they're often inaccessible upon transfer
1: to the acute care setting. Obviously, the forms are no good if they can't be found. And if you're unaware of your state's rules with respect to POLST, you can check out pulse.org slash programs hyphen in hyphen your hyphen state, which has a ton of information.
0: Yeah, definitely worth checking out, especially since in many states, the POLST is the only legally recognized do not intubate order in the out of hospital setting. Hmm, it seems pretty relevant to dyspnea in the dying patient. Certainly does, but back to pre-hospital care since we haven't really broached actual care yet. For those with clear wishes of comfort measures only, pre-hospital providers should consider applying both oxygen or bronchodilators, if indicated, as both may provide some benefit with very minimal burden. So that's it for pre-hospital care. Let's move on to care in the ED, starting with the H&P. Well, not quite. Before getting to the history, you actually have some other questions to address. One of the first questions that you'll be faced with is, is the patient dying? Although often hard to determine, In cancer patients, the end of life is often accompanied by a dramatic decline in ADLs. In those with solid tumors, patients spending over 50% of their time in bed have a prognosis of less than 8 weeks. Even more noteworthy are those with advanced cancer. A history of uncontrolled progression of disease carries a relative risk of death of 22
1: for imminent death within the next two weeks. And sadly, there are no good tools to predict short-term mortality in those with an acute decompensation of advanced underlying disease. As a general rule, the patient's goals or previously expressed wishes, not prognosis, should guide the treatment focus. And this absolutely isn't something you need to consult palliative care for. The literature clearly
0: demonstrates that not only can ED clinicians effectively engage patients in a goals of care discussion,
1: but also that these same conversations may dramatically change the care plan. And while you're having these conversations, make sure to focus on management of pain and symptoms, preparation for death, being treated as a whole person, all while actively involving the patient in treatment decisions, as these are the factors that those with life-limiting illnesses have found to be most helpful. Thankfully, as experts in the field, Dr.
0: Shreves and Dr. Poor provide us a simple playbook to help guide us through what can be a very difficult conversation.
1: Never ask a patient, do you want everything done? Instead, start by asking the patients and the family what they know about their condition. This is such an important breakpoint. If you sense a large gap between the clinical reality and their understanding, This may be an insurmountable barrier to an effective conversation about goals. But for those who do have a reasonable understanding, explore questions like what's most important to you and what are you hoping for right now? You may even consider mapping out two distinct treatment paths for the patient so they can understand how the decisions they make would play out in a stepwise fashion.
0: Mapping out a projected treatment course is extremely important since it's been demonstrated that few patients understand that successful resuscitations often are followed by mechanical ventilation, which obviously precludes
1: communication. Don't be the one to block a patient's last words with an unwanted piece of plastic in their trachea. Definitely don't do that. Like we mentioned earlier, make sure to review any advanced directives or the pulse or MOLST if one of those exists. And with respect to the actual HPI, pay attention to
0: the specific words the patient is using to describe their dyspnea, as this may point to an underlying etiology. Quote, air hunger correlates with hypercapnia, whereas words like tight or constricted are associated with asthma or COPD.
1: Similarly, words like rapid or heavy or out of breath or I can't get enough air, these are often associated with patients who have pleural effusions or interstitial lung disease.
0: If a patient is awake, you can ask him or her to rate their dyspnea using a 0 to 100 millimeter visual analog scale to help guide your treatment plans. And if unfortunately the patient is unconscious or non-communicative, you'll have to rely on reports of changing breathing patterns, gasping, and
1: more labored breathing to help guide you. Speaking of guiding the treatment plan, don't forget to elicit home opiate use in the dying patient as this will be incredibly useful when deciding how to titrate opiate use in the ED and in the wards. Great point. And lastly, definitely reach out to the patient's hospice organization if they have
0: enrolled. They typically not only have valuable HPI, but may also send a hospice nurse
1: to the ED to help assist the patient in their last minutes. Sending a private nurse to the ED? That's incredible. Definitely worth a quick phone call. All right, let's move on to the physical. As we said earlier, the first step is to determine where the patient falls on the dying trajectory. Vital sign derangements were associated with the survival of less than two weeks. Individually, tachypnea and tachycardia carry a relative risk of death of 13 and five respectively. In another
0: study, hypotension, tachycardia, and the presence of
1: delirium were all found to independently predict survival of less than 10 days. While well, those are all pretty impressive numbers. Dr. Shreves and Dr. Poor cite some even more impressive figures. The presence of a death rattle correlated with a median survival of 23 hours, respirations with mandibular movements just two and a half hours, and cyanosis to the extremities a single hour. And
0: as you approach the bedside, pay particular attention to accessory muscle use and rapid or shallow respirations as both are signs of dyspnea and suffering. In addition, in nonverbal patients, examine their face as grimacing may suggest pain or discomfort. And of course, in verbal patients, simply
1: ask them about dyspnea as their own report is the most important measure. On exam, you're looking out for all the typical findings wheezing to suggest asthma or COPD, decreased raps and lung sounds to suggest an effusion or pneumothorax, cyanosis to suggest hypoxia, pallor to suggest anemia, and crackles to suggest pulmonary edema.
0: And although not truly part of the physical, we should include it here. Make sure to look for and discuss any advanced directives, especially if the patient has lost decision-making capacity. As with pre-hospital care, this can be a tricky situation,
1: as the legal and ethical framework for end-of-life decision-making varies by state. And this will be, I think, our third plug. Make sure to review any pulse that may have been transported with the patient. If no pulse exists, you'll have to rely on living will, advanced directives, or any other documents that the patient may have. If no such guidance can be found, you'll have to use a surrogate decision maker, which is
0: determined by the legal hierarchy. If one has been designated, the healthcare proxy or healthcare power of attorney is responsible for all decisions. If no such proxy has been designated, the patient's spouse, then adult children, then parents, then siblings, then grandchildren, and finally close friends become responsible.
1: And ideally, the decision made by any of these surrogates should be the same, as they're all supposed to be using substituted judgment. That means they're determining what decision the patient would have wanted if they were able to make the decision themselves. And lastly, if neither a surrogate nor a document can be located,
0: the presumption should be that life-sustaining therapies are desired and the patient should be resuscitated accordingly.
1: Great, so that's it for the H&P, let's move on to diagnostic studies. Diagnostic studies will vary dramatically based largely on the patient's goals. In someone requesting maximal
0: comfort measures, even vital sign checks can be foregone. If the patient's goals are consistent with placing an IV, obtain basic lab tests is a minimal burden on the patient and is therefore reasonable. If the patient would be amenable to a transfusion, send a CBC to assess for anemia. A VBG may also
1: be reasonable to assess for hypercapnia as an etiology of the patient's dyspnea. EKGs are also a relatively non-invasive test and are therefore reasonable as they may reveal an easily reversible cause of dyspnea, like an arrhythmia, that could be addressed in the ED. Similarly, chest
0: radiographs are a minimal burden and may reveal an obvious cause of dyspnea with a targeted therapy, like
1: antibiotics, chest tubes, etc., as long as those are within the patient's goals. Not surprisingly, ultrasound may also play a role. I mean, of course it does, we talk about it almost every month as it's minimally invasive and reveals potentially useful information for targeted therapies as indicated by the patient's goals. And lastly, we have telemetry. Yes, that's right, your very basic telemetry.
0: In those who are at the end of life, vital signs often fall outside the norm, so spare your patient the alarms and intrusive distracting noises and allow their symptoms, not their numbers, to guide your management. All great points. Let's move on to treatment next. As with the diagnostic tests we discussed, treatment will depend on the patient's goals, but in general should be more focused on symptoms, especially in those whom comfort is the highest priority.
1: Opioids are the mainstay of treatment for breathlessness as they centrally reduce the reaction and subsequent compensatory physiologic changes associated with chemoreceptor activation from elevated PaCO2.
0: They can be given orally or parentally, but studies have shown that nebulized formulations are no better than placebo.
1: There isn't great literature to support one opioid over another, although hydromorphone is often preferred in patients with renal failure. In general, ED physicians should follow the mantra start low and go slow until the patient is comfortable. In one study, patients required a mean of 2.5 milligrams of oral hydromorphone
0: to achieve comfort, whereas in another study, patients required 9.4 milligrams of oral morphine
1: with a huge range. Dr. Shrews and Dr. Poor suggest that it's reasonable to start with either 1 to 2 milligrams of IV morphine or 0.2 to 04 milligrams of hydromorphone with repeated doses every 10 minutes until the patient is comfortable. Don't forget that for those
0: who are opioid tolerant, the starting dose should be roughly 10% of the total daily opioid dose. And in those that are complicated or already on very high dose opioid regimens, this may be the time to involve your
1: colleagues in palliative care to ensure the patient gets adequate relief. If the patient is verbal, don't rely on objective findings and instead tailor your treatment to the subjective relief of dyspnea as reported by the patient. If the patient is nonverbal, you'll have to rely on your clinical judgment as well as that of the family. And what about the concern that opioids can actually hasten death? Is there any merit to that? Great question. And multiple studies have demonstrated that when given carefully for targeted symptomatic relief, changes in arterial oxygenation and carbon dioxide are not observed. In addition, another study found no association between survival and the amount of opioids administered. Lastly, in a cohort of 725 hospice patients, opioid dosing contributed to very little of the variability in survival. Well, I guess that settles that. Next, we have the benzos. Benzodiazepines should
0: be used specifically when anxiety is suspected as a major source of the patient's dyspnea. When compared to placebo and opioids for breathlessness, benzodiazepines offer no advantage.
1: Secretions often become a major problem at the end of life and often cause the, quote, death rattle we mentioned a few minutes ago that heralds the end of life in hours to days. While the rattle does not indicate patient discomfort, it can be quite distressing to family members. Secretions
0: can be managed by either suctioning, repositioning, or with anti-secretory medications, with repositioning always being the preferred first intervention. If that doesn't work, you must turn to meds. In one randomized trial of over 300 patients, clinicians found no difference between atropine, scopolamine, and butyl bromide, with 40% of patients having a reduction in the death rattle to a non-disturbing
1: rattle in just one hour. Of note, however, there was no placebo group in this trial, so take it or leave it. And if you are giving medications, glycopyrrolate should be administered parentarily in doses of 0.2 mg every 6 hours. Alternatively, 2 drops of 1% ophthalmic atropine, yes, ophthalmic, should be given orally every 2-4 to four hours, 0.2 to 0.4 mg can also be given parentarily if an IV is in place. Hence, scloplamine is of course applied via a patch. Always good to be reminded of doses, but always remember that
0: repositioning should come first as this simple maneuver may resolve the problem. There are also two other non-pharmacologic
1: therapies worth mentioning, supplemental oxygen and handheld fans. In one double-blinded RCT, there is no difference in subjective relief when comparing oxygen to rumair. Additionally, when comparing oxygen to opioids, opioids work significantly better. Despite these findings, oxygen is of little burden to the patient and it's therefore reasonable to give the dyspneic patient a trial of supplemental oxygen. With regard to handheld fans, a few studies have demonstrated that fans aimed at the face
0: of the dyspneic patient relieve dyspnea to a significant degree. Given that fans basically have no side effects at all, The side effects of fans? Yeah, I think you get it, they basically have none. And given
1: how cheap and easy and potentially effective they are, fans are definitely worth a shot. The last intervention we should discuss is involving both social worker and chaplaincy services. Both groups may be better suited to deal with the anxiety, stress, and existential distress of the patients and family than the typical ED physician. If you have such services, definitely, definitely take advantage of them. Let's get to the special circumstances in the cutting-edge section of this article. First up is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. In a small trial of patients with advanced malignancy and hypoxic or hypercapnic respiratory failure, non-invasive ventilation was associated with an improvement in oxygenation and dyspnea. Keep in mind, however, that it's uncomfortable and can make one feel like they're suffocating. So the potential benefits must be weighed against this burden, all in the context of the patient's specific goals. With that in mind, perhaps a better alternative would be high-flow nasal cannula, which provides heated and humidified
0: oxygen with a small amount of positive pressure. Unlike non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, high flow nasal cannula gives some positive pressure while allowing increased comfort,
1: maintaining the ability to communicate with loved ones, and allowing the patient to continue to take oral medications. When comparing non-invasive positive pressure ventilation to high flow, one study found them to be equivalent in terms of alleviating dyspnea. Another study found that high flow obviated the need for non-invasive ventilation. On the flip side, unless you find a hospice setting willing to accommodate high flows, this may be a barrier to discharge from the acute setting. True, but I'd advise you to take it one step at a time. And if they need a bit of positive pressure, it's probably better to start them on high flow rather than going right to the more invasive, yet still non-invasive option. Well said. All right, let's close this episode out with
0: disposition. This will depend on a ton of factors including patient acuity, caregiver
1: availability, and hospital and community resources. Those with a very limited prognosis may spend their last hours in the ED Ideally, this should be done in a quiet, respectful, and supportive environment such as a private room with plenty of seats for family members. And for those with days to weeks, they may spend their final days
0: in inpatient hospice or on a palliative care unit. These palliative care units provide fantastic care with families reporting the highest quality of end of life, even better than an inpatient unit with
1: a palliative consultation. Definitely involve the palliative care team early. One study showed that even though most patients getting a palliative care consult arrived through the ED, few consults were initiated by the ED. Definite room for improvement there. And lastly, studies have shown that hospice can successfully
0: be initiated in the ED. And even though the process may take 24 to 48 hours, this referral ensures that patients and their families continue to receive the expert, coordinative, supportive care necessary at the end of life.
1: Great. So let's close this episode out with a quick review of key points and clinical pearls that we covered today. In patients with life-limiting illnesses, careful communication should be used
0: to clarify the goals of care to minimize the use of unnecessary and burdensome interventions. The patient's goals or previously expressed wishes, not prognosis, should guide treatment focus. Many states have adopted MULST or pulsed forms which provide medical orders for life-sustaining treatment and physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. This form is bright pink to help EMS crews and emergency physicians rapidly identify it. Be sure to look for it early to guide your management of the Dysmic
1: patient. If the patient's goals are consistent with placing an IV, obtaining basic blood tests is a minimal burden on the patient and is therefore reasonable. Similarly, chest radiography and chest ultrasound are of minimal burden and may reveal an easily reversible cause of dyspnea. Opioids are
0: the mainstay of pharmacologic therapy for dyspnea management in the terminally ill. Opioids do not hasten death at the end of life.
1: It's reasonable to start with either 1-2 to mg of IV morphine or 0.2-0.4 to mg of hydromorphone with repeated doses every 10 minutes until the patient is comfortable. For those in chronic opioids, start with 10% of their daily dose and increase from there. There may be a role for a time-limited trial of non-invasive positive
0: pressure ventilation and supplemental oxygen.
1: Consider high-flow nasal cannula as an alternative to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as it allows patients to take oral medications and communicate with their families and friends. Handheld fans are another low-cost, low-risk intervention that have been shown to significantly improve dyspnea in the terminally ill patient. Secretion should first be managed by repositioning and then suctioning if repositioning fails. Pharmacologic therapy with either atropine, scopolamine, and glycopyrrolate are all acceptable options. Involve chaplaincy and social work services, if available, to address anxiety, stress, and existential distress of the patients and their families. In terms of disposition, terminally ill patients with very limited prognosis may spend their last hours in the ED. Others with hours to days may be dispositioned to hospice or a palliative care unit. Remember to involve the palliative care team early in the patient's care. So that wraps up the July 2018 episode of Amplify. If you missed the sun and the beach in Pontevedra last month, you can still pick up a few of the key teaching points on our Twitter at EB Medicine. For those of you looking for CME, the address for this month's
0: credit is ebmedicine.net slash E0718. So head over there right away to get the credit you deserve. Remember that the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions should be quick, easy and painless. Talk to you all next month.